we're going to jump into God's Word. We, this is the last message. Next Sunday is Vision Sunday. Come along and see what our focus is for the coming year. But I want to speak to you this morning about life-changing worship. And Pastor Danny, I'll talk to you about fasting. Uh, before Pastor Alan came, we had a session on praise, talking about the different kinds of praise we can give to God and a biblical concept of it. But today I want to talk to worship and the nuances between thanksgiving, praise and worship are important, but they're all part of our response to God. And in Acts 13, verse 2 to 3, it says, While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I've called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them out. There's a whole lot of things going in this passage as the early church gathers together fasting, ministering or worshipping the Lord. But I want you to notice it creates an atmosphere, worship, where God by His Spirit speaks to us corporately, but also in your life. When you commit to being a worshipper, God by His Spirit speaks into that space. It's an atmosphere that you create around your life. I want to make just one or two comments about the bridge between praise and worship. Praise is the gateway into God's presence. And the Scripture teaches us that we cannot enter God's presence empty-handed, as it were. Psalm 100 and verse 4 says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. I want you to notice praise and worship or praise doesn't drag you into the presence of God. Praise and thanksgiving is something you bring into the presence of God. You enter his gates with thanksgiving. And there's something about praise, thanksgiving that ushers you into the presence of God. I love something that Miles Monroe said in a book called The Power of Praise and Worship. He says, praise is us building a house for God. Worship is God moving in. Isn't that a great statement? Praise is us building a house for God. Worship is God moving in, that atmosphere of God's presence. So I want to talk a little bit about true worship or worshiping in spirit and in truth. And I want to pose a question. What comes to your mind if I were to describe a true worshipper, if you were to describe a true worshipper, what comes to mind? Would it be some pious, holy person who just, nothing wrong in their lives, everything right, dedicated worships? Is that the picture? Well, I want us to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And verse 3. So he left Judea, that's Jesus, and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So when he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to drink water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 
His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. So the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drink, drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have five husbands or have had five husbands. And the man that you now have is not your husband. What you said is quite true. So the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus said, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither here on the mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. And we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and the worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. May God bless his word to us. Jesus, wanting to teach us about worship, doesn't go to the temple doesn't find a righteous Pharisee, doesn't find somebody who's got their life all together. He engages in a conversation with a broken, immoral, social outcast. Notice the intent with which he has this divine appointment. So he left Galilee and went back once more 
sorry, sorry, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. This was a divining point. He knew that this woman was come to the well at midday, not early in the morning or late in the afternoon when it's cool because she's been rejected. She's despised in her town. She is tired of the painful bobs and comments and the gossip. If she were to come with the other woman, she comes in the heat of the day right when Jesus has sent the disciples to town and he's ready to engage her. The shortest route from Jerusalem to Galilee, Judea to Galilee, was through Samaria. But pious Jews avoided it because of their distinct distrust and dislike for the Samaritans. Without going into a massive history lesson, but after the Assyrians had captured the northern tribes who backslid first and went into captivity, in about 722 BC, they deported all the important Jews from that area, the northern tribes, into their capitals and other parts of their empire. They took all the skilled workers as well. And what they left behind were kind of the dregs of the society. They were the Jews that were left behind. Those who didn't have skills as craftsmen, those who didn't have wealth, those who didn't have education. And then they sent other people from other parts of the empire to go and settle there, to try and wipe out this distinct people group, this Jewish population up there. And they intermarried. And long story short, that this group of Samaritans who are now this mixed group develop a style of worship that brings some things from Moses and a whole lot of other pagan practices and crying creates this mixed faith, this mixed religion that is neither one thing or the other. And the Jews viewed them as half-breeds who had this heretic mongrel faith. I'm trying to just give you a sense and that's why there's such animosity and she acknowledges it. She's surprised that a Jewish rabbi will begin to talk to her. But there's no normal Jewish rabbi. Jesus is highly and graciously relational. And he walks into this cultural, racial, religious uh, atmosphere of hostility. And he just walks in like he belongs. Because he does in places of brokenness and conflict and pain. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus engages her in a conversation, will you give me a drink? We never find out her name. Maybe the disciples didn't think it was important enough to inquire. They're still struggling with their bigotry and cultural divides and all the stuff that they have towards. So nobody asked her name. Yet her encounter with Jesus is the longest conversation in John's gospel. And Jesus sits on the edge of Jacob's well. There's all sorts of significance to this. This patriarch who builds this well there, it's significant, and engages her, ready to rescue her, but of equal importance to teach us about worship. Will you give me a drink? He says to her. 
Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? This is blowing her mind. He just, she just cannot comprehend. And then John explains for us, for Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And I've given you a little bit of a context for that. She is shocked that a Jewish rabbi would talk to her both as a Samaritan and as a woman. There's a whole lot of loaded things going on in her mind and in her heart. And in a sense, we're shocked. Especially when we know this is going to be a conversation about true worshippers. Surely you could find a better candidate. Surely you could find somebody who's got a better life. Surely you could find somebody whose life is a little bit more cleaned up than this woman's life as we discover as we go through this conversation. This is John's version of the prodigal son, but it's a prodigal daughter that Jesus has found here. In Luke 15, what launches the parable of the prodigal son is that Jesus eats with tax collectors and notable sinners. And here he's having, willing to have a drink and a conversation with a Samaritan adulteress. Because not only is Jesus graciously relational, but worship is actually about real life. Not some sanctimonious thing in a cathedral, and I'm not against worshiping in a cathedral, but some kind of pristine, perfect setting where there's great harmonies and choirs, and that can be powerful. I hope you hear what I'm trying to say. I'm not dismissing that as worship, but we kind of think that's what true worship is. Beautiful choirs, perfect musicians. Perfect songs. He said to her, go call your husband and come back. I'm going to come back to that statement just a little bit later, but first observation of this. I have no husband, she replied. She's kind of dodging the question a little bit. Jesus' words are opening something in her heart and her life to expose something, not to expose, to humiliate her, but to expose something to heal her. I have no husband. Jesus says to you, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man that you now have is not your husband. What you said is quite right. See, we need to understand that worship is not just for Sunday moments. That's good, that's powerful, and we're going to have an opportunity to enter into worship, to lean into God's presence, to have corporate worship. But worship is about everyday and everyday life. It's not some mystical interlude that we kind of step out of the real world and step into this pristine little bubble for a moment and then step back into the mess that goes on in our world and in our lives. Worship has to do with real life. In this instance, adultery and thirst and hunger and and racial conflict that has gone on for centuries. That Jesus calmly and confidently steps into. See, the Father seeks and finds worshippers who are living real lives and often from the least worthy. She's a Samaritan woman. 
living in shame. She's a social outcast. As I said, she comes at midday. Nobody came at midday unless you didn't want to have conversations with other people. And as I said, the other women mock her and taunt her. And so she's driven to come in the heat of the day when nobody else will come. She is a broken sinner. But as Jesus has a conversation with her, under all the shame, under all the brokenness, under all the pain, under all the rejection is still a tender, open heart towards God. It's hard to see it if you were to just look at her life and not see as God sees. For God looks not at the outward appearance, but at the heart. And Jesus stepped into and broke so many ancient social taboos to bring healing. We need to connect this story to John's introduction of Jesus in John chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is that of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. It's a wonderful statement that in Jesus taking on humanity, fully God, fully man steps in to our world, into our pain, into our mess, into our brokenness. Some 2000 years ago, we behold something of the glory of the Father. We see somebody full of grace and truth, not just grace, not just truth, but Jesus lives this incredible tension to able to engage us with grace and truth, truth and grace. And of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. But I just want you to think about one word in that. We. We. See, we read it and we kind of rush over it. But that word we is important because it includes you, it includes me, it includes us. We have received. And who are we? Because you read it back then, you think, oh, those people must have had something special maybe. No, we, people like us, we. And who are we? Well, we are people who struggle sometimes. We are people who disobey. We are people who are ungrateful sometimes. We are people who don't always press into our relationship with God as much as we should. We are sometimes fearful. We are sometimes lazy. We are sometimes living with pain and shame and rejection. That's who we are. And we, because of who Jesus is, receive grace upon grace. We receive that. The one who shines the fullness of the Father's glory. The one who is full of grace and truth. And from him, we. And my question is, as part of the we today, what's going on in your world? What's the struggle? What's the point of pain that when you came to church, you thought, oh, I don't know if I can turn my face towards God. I'm dealing with this. I'm carrying this guilt, this weight, this thing, this struggle. No, but we, when we see him, receive grace upon grace. 
You see, what Jesus teaches us is worship is a person, not a place. And that comes out of this conversation. Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And again, there's this kind of sense that I want to bring to us about worship. If we really knew who Jesus is, and it's great to have a theological concept and continue to read the word, but this is an urging towards an encounter with a person, not just a process of worship or a place of worship, an encounter with a person in worship. Jesus, if you only knew, if you only fully realised when you come into a place like this to worship or on a weekday, driving in the car, lift your voice to the Lord. If you only fully realised who you were worshipping, you would say, oh God, pour out that grace upon grace. I need to drink of your grace. I need to encounter your truth, but I need to drink of your grace. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped at this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. See, she's still caught in this place thing. Is it here? Is it there? The Samaritans had claimed there was a mountain that Jacob had blessed, and therefore that was the place. The Jews claim the temples in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus said, believe me, a time is coming. When you will worship the Father, the person, and it doesn't matter where you do it, whether it's this mountain, Jerusalem, your bedroom, your lounge room, driving in your car, it's not about the place, it's about the person you worship. That's what it's about. Jesus directs this woman's attention away from the external question of where, and he makes it an internal question of how and who. How do I worship and who do I worship? Not where, not the externals, but the internals. And so spirit and truth is what's at the very centre of living worship. In order to worship God in truth, we do need to understand some things about him. That's why doctrine and teaching and and reading the Bible, we get a revelation, we get some truth about the Almighty God. But it's not about just the information, it's about the encounter with the Father. It's the encounter in worship. Jesus identifies that true worship is not a matter of the head. It doesn't ignore the head. Please don't disengage your brain. But God says, no, I want to engage your heart. A time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And what is it so remarkable about the story, and there's so much more I could touch on, but I want to move to the key thought, is that worship utterly and completely changes us when we worship in spirit and truth, when we go beyond place and we come to person 
and we come with all our brokenness, with all our struggle, whatever good, bad or otherwise, and we come to God and we say, God, my heart, I set aside the guilt, the shame, the struggle, the pain, whatever, and God, my heart, I give my heart to you. I worship you. I worship you. Jesus touches the most sensitive, vulnerable, painful spot in her life. Go call your husband. And I want you to understand, I need to understand, we need to understand, that Jesus doesn't avoid our pain. He goes straight to it. Sometimes we want to hide it. Don't touch that. Don't go there. It's so painful. I don't want to open that to God. He goes straight there. Not to wound us further. We don't fully realise how that is such an enormous place of pain in her life. She's had five husbands and the way divorce worked back in the day. The husband could divorce for a person burning the toast. Trivial things. And they would go before the elders of the city, drag the wife there and publicly point at her and say three times, I reject you, I reject you, I reject you. And they were divorced. Five times she's been dragged to the marketplace, publicly humiliated. For hearing over and over again, you're not worth anything. I reject you. Go away. And Jesus goes right there. John Piper says, the quickest way to the heart is through a wound. He's speaking about God. Dealing with our hearts, our brokenness, our struggles, those things we hide, sometimes even from ourselves, let alone from others. God says, true worship is when all your heart is open to me. And if I need to enter into that through your pain, I'll do it. Not to humiliate you, not to hurt you further, but to heal you. Jesus says, whoever drinks this water, speaking of Jacob's well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. And listen to these words. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Did did you get that? Did you see what happened there? She is this dry, broken, wounded, sinful Desperate woman who is so, so thirsty, spiritually thirsty. Dealing with all kinds of rejection and pain, as I've mentioned. And Jesus says, you worship and I'll turn you into a fountain of eternal life. And before our very eyes, if you read the rest of the story, the whole city comes out to see Jesus and she literally in a moment is moved from this person of rejection and alienation to now a fountain of living water.
The Greek and the Hebrew words for worship mean to bow down, to prostrate yourself in reverence. It's that abandoning yourself completely to the one you worship. The Greek adds the idea of adoration to kiss the hand. Worship is the outpouring of our whole being before God. In his presence and under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Worship is all that we are seeking to respond to all that God is. Worship is all that we are seeking to respond to all that God is. And therein is the power of worship. A.W. Tozer said this, more spiritual progress can be made in one short moment of speechless silence in the awesome presence of God than in all the years of mere study. Now, if you know A.W. Tozer, he was a great student of the word. He's not setting that aside. He's not saying that's unimportant. But he said the change happens when the truth of what I've learned, what I know, encounters the presence of God. And in the presence of God, more shifts in our lives than anything else. I'm going to conclude this by going to another woman, similarly disreputable, that comes at the very centre of Jesus explaining worship. This time it's Luke's gospel, chapter 7 and verse 37. A woman in that town, Jesus is having a feast at a Pharisee's house. Somebody who on the outside has all their life together and kind of treats people like that. In fact, when this woman comes, the Pharisee Simon thinks to himself, if he were the Messiah, he would know what kind of woman this was. He doesn't say it out loud. And Jesus challenges him and says, actually, this is who this woman is. But I don't have time to unpack all of it. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And she stood behind him at his feet weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. So the most incredible worship comes from the most unlikely people in the most unlikely places. She heard about Jesus. She had a revelation, an inkling of who he was. He wasn't like the other Pharisees and the other rabbis. He was different, full of grace and truth. And there was grace upon grace. It's not hidden that she's a sinful woman. Jesus acknowledges it in the story, but it's not enough to push her away, to reject her. It's in fact, come because you are broken. Come because you are sinful. Come because you are struggling. This woman in this story, again unnamed, is an outcast who's used to being abused. She was a sinful woman, publicly known to be that. But something about Jesus caused her to bring her most valuable possession and to pour it out in expression of love and worship. She pressed through the fear, past the prejudice, the gossip, the shame, and created an intimate moment of worship that Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached, the story will be remembered. And we focus a lot 
on the alabaster jar that cost a year's worth of wages that she breaks and pours out. But she actually came with two jars. She came with two jars. In those days, Stoicism was a philosophy that infiltrated the whole of the ancient world. And when it says she washed his feet with her tears, it's not just a picture of somebody crying. She probably was weeping. But in order to get through life, you would bottle up your pain, your emotions. And when you wept, you would catch your tears in a tear vase. And you can find, you can go and look this up. She comes with a perfume, but she comes with all the pain in a vase. It's even referenced in Psalms, God says, He collects your tears in a bottle. All those lonely, broken moments. When your heart cried and maybe there were tears, God says, I collect those. That's what she came with. And in the act of worship, she pours, as it were, all her pain over his feet and washes them and then anoints them with a perfume. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says to the Pharisee who thought to himself, if if he were the Messiah, he would know what kind of woman this was. Jesus says, I'll tell you, Simon, what kind of woman she was. Her sins, her many sins have been forgiven. As her great love has shown, for whosoever has been forgiven little, loves little. But if you've forgiven much, you will love much. And that's the invitation. In just touching two stories, both broken, outcast people, that Jesus says that is at the heart of worship. Because when we, whatever is going on, in our lives, when we, with all that stuff, come and worship, there's change, there's transformation. The greatest act of worship is the yielding of your life to Jesus, just coming to Him. And there's this whole religious thing that somehow we've got to fix our lives before we come to God. No, it's because we can't fix our lives, Jesus came and died for us and rose again that He might be a living Saviour.